is a podcast from the Refugee Studies Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. introduction and uh, now that I'm thoroughly dated I don't have to worry about you know cutting my hair or rinsing it anymore because the, the the years have been uh, have been spoken uh, yeah. so thank you very much and, and thank you very much to the RSC for hosting me for this term and for agreeing to put on this seminar series I'm quite excited uh, about the conversations that we'll be having as, as Alex noted many of the contributors are in the room and so thank you to the contributors who, who are here and really to the conversation that I hope we'll be able to have over the next five weeks I'm, I'm quite excited about it um, my goal in the next uh, 45 minutes or so really to do three things. First, I I want to present an introduction to this topic that we're calling global refugee policy, to explain how it is that we define it, how it is that we study it, how we can critically engage with it, and I hope that this foundation will provide an entry point so that the various presentations can interrogate some common questions. I'm then going to use uh, the case of Tanzania, and uh, Tanzania is a case study for trying to implement uh, a global policy on resolving protracted refugee situations uh, as a case study that helps um, illustrate or or illuminate some of the challenges and the way that understanding global refugee policy as a process, not only as a product, gives some clarity to what it is that we mean by this phenomenon within the global refugee regime. Uh, And then what I'll do is I'll then come back to the broader, uh, the seminar series, but also talk about how there are a number of initiatives that are in the works that I hope will uh, continue to interrogate this theme, which is really a a very significant area of activity for the global refugee regime. And of course, I welcome your feedback, not only in the the question time after the seminar, uh, but also I'll I'll be at the RSC until the end of May. And I would very much welcome opportunities to interact more informally with um, anyone who has something to say about uh, what I'm about to say. So, to begin with the motivation uh, for this area of work, um, if we follow uh, UNHCR press briefings, if we've been following the work of the global refugee regime over the last few years, we know that Jeff and his colleagues have been very, very busy. There has been quite a bit of global policy that has been drafted and published within the last few years. The idea of making policy on topics as diverse as age, gender, diversity, mainstreaming, statelessness, natural disasters, urban refugee policy, children at risk, refugees with disabilities, civil registration, the list of topics where the decision-making bodies of the global refugee regime have come together to identify a problem and articulate a solution to that problem has been quite wide-ranging. So this is a very significant area of activity within the global refugee regime but yet we know surprisingly little about it. There's a central claim of the, of the special issue that I'll refer to in, the mom- in a moment, is that although refugee and forced migration studies has long been preoccupied with the particularities of specific policies, and I think of special issues of the Journal of Refugee, uh, uh, refugee Studies on Urban Refugee Policy, for example, the work of FMR in uh, publishing special issues on particular areas of policy concern, We've been concerned with the elements and implications of policies for on refugees and other displaced persons, but our understanding of the process overall has been surprisingly limited. 
we have a very limited understanding of the, how we get to these policies at a global level and if and how these policies predictably are implemented uh, in a local level. Now, this contrasts very much with our understanding of national and regional policies. Uh, for example, work, uh, Matthew's work on uh, the politics of asylum and liberal democracies, for example. This is the, Karen Jacobson's work on the response of refugee, of refugee hosting states in the context of mass influx. We have quite a bit of work that looks at how policy is formulated at a national level, at a regional level, especially in the European context. We have very little understanding of this process as a discernible area of activity at the global level. Now, it may be that this limited engagement with this global process is motivated by a hesitation that we've seen within refugee and forced migration studies literature in the last eight years or so, which cautions too close of a relationship between the academic study of the phenomenon that causes consequences and responses to movements of refugees and forced migration and, um, and, and the need to retain a certain degree of independence but I would argue, and, and, and this work is motivated by the argument that this is an area of activity that's clear, that's discernible, that's significant, and that it's an area of activity that warrants our, most, our, our more focused um, examination, not only to clarify the concept, to clarify what we mean by this area of policy, if it is indeed a discernible area of activity, what motivates it, how it functions, the claims that it makes, but also to be able to disaggregate this process so that we can engage with it much more systematically, so that it doesn't re remain as one um, sort of general phenomenon, but something that we can start unpacking to be able to um, explain. So the idea that the making of policy is something that the global refugee regime does, and that we need to do a better job of understanding how that policy is made and if and how that policy is implemented. So why does this matter? Well, the original thinking of work on global refugee policy, some of the early conversations that Alex and I had around this um, two and a half, three years ago now, was motivated by this fact that we, we spend a lot of time doing this policy thing. And we make certain claims by doing this policy thing. Does this area of activity deliver on its implicit promises? As some of you may know, I, I have spent quite a bit of time um, thinking and being hopeful about policy. And sometimes I feel like, a, like a, a, a jilted lover. Sometimes there's a feeling as though, you know, I've finally seen clearly that policy may not be the panacea to all of the problems that we may be identifying, that there's something more to it. And so when you think clearly about the efforts and the resources that go into convening meetings like XCOM, the time and the energy and the resources that UNHCR colleagues, state representatives, NGOs, the resources that it takes to fly these 90-plus delegations into Geneva to host these meetings, the energy that's, that's invested in trying to implement these examples of global refugee policy, the very important work behind it, but the resources that are invested in it. But much more compelling for me are the implicit moral claims associated with agreeing on a particular policy. And as I'll explain as I go through this, this is motivated very much by my own work on protracted refugee situations. 
there's a sense that once a global policy is adopted, especially within the decision-making mechanisms of the global refugee regime, that it has a certain degree of legitimacy and authority. There's an implicit moral claim that by adopting a policy, that will necessarily lead to actions that reverse the challenges that we see and address the problems that we identify. How can we understand the ability of global refugee policy to live up to this implicit moral claim? How can we unpack that uh, implicit moral claim? But more generally, uh, the making and implementation of policy remains a, a very important opportunity to test the functioning of the global refugee regime. This is something I'll talk about much more uh, next Tuesday as I give a, a, a presentation at 1 o'clock in the Work in Progress series on notions of power and influence within the global refugee regime. But how the claims of a regime to be able to facilitate collective action, whether or not the making and implementation of policy provides an opportunity to test this functioning. But again, I keep coming back to the idea that this remains a significant area of, of activity, yet it remains poorly understood despite its prevalence. So, in response to these kinds of concerns, there were a series of uh, events and products and activities that took place. Uh, you may remember in December 2012, the focus of the 30th anniversary conference of the RSC was on global refugee policy. Uh, the conference was preceded by a pre-conference workshop where 12 papers were presented on different aspects of global refugee policy. And then in December 2012, uh, we were very fortunate to be able to publish a special issue of the uh, Journal for Refugee Studies that looked at different aspects of global refugee policy and tried to outline a, a way of encouraging future scholarship in this area. I'll talk today about some of the, the core arguments of my introduction of my chapter on protracted refugee situations in Tanzania. Sarah Deardorff Miller's uh, paper uh, drew from the lessons of global public policy from the work of Soros from the mid-1980s, the early 1990s, to Diane Stone today, but how we can bring some of those lessons into the study of global refugee policy. Uh, Marion Fries's piece uh, did uh, employed participant observation to look at how the XCOM conclusion on children at risk was negotiated. Uh, Landau and Amit's piece made a very compelling argument about the significance of local actors in the definition of protection space for refugees and other forced migrants in southern Africa. Africa and raises the question of whether or not the traditional policy actors or the policy documents of global refugee policy really have the salience that we might imagine. Thomas Gamelthoff Hansen's piece looked at transnational policy networks and raised questions about the, uh, the, the role of global refugee policy in limiting the actions of space. And Susan Kneebone's piece looked at the uh, role of uh, global and regional actors in agenda setting uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Asia Pacific, specifically through the Bali process. So from this special issue, from the results of the, uh, of the 30th anniversary conference, what have we learned from this work? What we've learned is that we can argue that something called global refugee policy does exist and that we might define this phenomenon as a formal statement of and a proposed course of action in response to a problem relating to protection, solutions, or assistance for refugees or other populations of concern to the global refugee regime. 
this area of activity is motivated what the literature on public policy calls a, pol- a policy problem. Uh, and in the special issue, we argue that these policy problems uh, are not only uh, relating to refugees, but other persons of concern to the global refugee regime. So here there's going to be an interesting conversation with Phil's presentation uh, later on in the term. Crucially, global refugee policy goes through a process of being uh, approved, uh, endorsed, and going through a decision-making process from within the decision-making bodies of the global refugee regime. So in a very formal sense, this takes the form of uh, a decision by the UN General Assembly, by the Executive Committee, by by the Standing Committee. And likewise, we can identify something as global refugee policy if, if if it contains this formal statement of a problem and a proposed course of action, if it's endorsed by the decision-making bodies of the global refugee regime, and if it takes the form of one of two areas of activity, either regulations that define the limits of permissible behavior for national governments, so for example, an executive committee conclusion that um, talks about permissible um, areas of activity um, at rescue at sea, for example, that was discussed quite recently, or programs administered by international agencies. And this is what we've seen much more of in recent years as the prevalence of XCOM conclusions has decreased, that most global refugee policy talks about the um, programs administered by UNHCR being an international agency. So there's, there's a sense of what parameters an object needs to fit into to fit a definition of global refugee policy. But there's then this distinction between global refugee policy as a product and as a process. And this is, I think, for me, analytically, one of the key developments that we've been able to make is the understanding that one can study global refugee policy as the document itself. So the recent piece in Refugee Survey Quarterly that looked at, conducted a, a textual analysis of UNHCR's protection documents from the Agenda for Protection to today to look at consistency and coherence in the use of language, setting out protection objectives. Now that, that's one way of engaging with global refugee policy, but much more generally, uh, I would argue, that we can understand global refugee policy as a process learning from the study of of policy studies, that we can understand that policy goes through five distinct stages. And at each stage of this process, there are questions that can and should be asked that help us understand more critically the policy itself. And so borrowing from this five-stage process of public policy, the first stage of agenda setting, raises questions of how do certain issues make it onto the agenda of the global refugee regime. Uh, Marion Frisia's piece on children at risk contains a very interesting consideration of competing topics on the XCOM agenda that year and which interests determine that children at risk would be the topic of the conclusion that year as opposed to other candidate topics. Once a topic is identified or a policy problem is identified as being of importance to uh, the decision-making bodies of the global refugee regime, what's the process by which policy, policy options are proposed? Which actors within the global refugee regime are able to bring forward uh, suggestions on the specific steps that can and should be taken to address the policy problem that's been identified? 
once there is, is a sense of the policy uh, mechanisms that will be uh, central to the, the, the policy itself, where and how do these policies become formalized? Inherent in the definition of global policy is the idea that it becomes uh, it's the result of the formal decision taken by a regime. But through some of the work that we've done on global refugee policy just in the last couple of years, we see that there's a distinction between the formal decision-making moment, a consensus reached by executive committee members, and a more informal decision-making process, which may be a space of contestation for a limited number of actors. So where does the actual decision-making, where and how does it take place? And then there's a whole set of questions to be asked once we have this policy that's agreed at the global level, in the context of refugees, typically at the level of Geneva. What are the factors that determine our ability to see that policy implemented in locations as diverse as from um, Delhi to Dadaab? And uh, here I, I mentioned the, the work of, of Alex and Phil on norm implementation and the way that it's helped us really critically unpack notions of implementation more generally. And then, of course, quite crucially, policy evaluation. There's a sense within the public policy literature that once a policy is implemented, there's a formal process of review and evaluation, and that necessarily feeds back into the agenda setting and an an automatic review and revisiting of the policy itself. And as we'll see in Jeff and, and Mary Beth's presentation next week, that process of contestation around urban refugee policy really raises questions about the feedback from policy evaluation to to agenda setting. So the point that I make here is that understanding global refugees policy as more than a product, as more than just a document, opens up a whole area of inquiry where we can more systematically understand the interests that determine a life cycle of a policy, from its formal adoption to efforts uh, to see its implementation. And for me, this, the importance of understanding policy as a process is really illustrated by uh, global policy on protracted refugee situations. So for the rest of my presentation, I'm going to now focus on this case study of protracted refugee situations, the making of a global policy on protracted refugee situations, an effort to implement that policy in the context of Tanzania. Very briefly, to remind us of the, uh, of the issue of protracted refugee situations, some two-thirds of refugees in the world today are not in emergency situations, but are trapped in situations of prolonged exile, um, defined by uh, being in exile for five or more years without immediate prospect of a durable solution. The average duration of a refugee situation has roughly doubled since the end of the Cold War, and most protracted refugee situations are to be found in some of the most unstable and precarious regions of, of the global south, and there's a map from the U.S. government that visualizes that for us. This issue of protracted refugee situations over the course of a decade worked its way onto the decision-making agenda of the global refugee regime. Uh, UNHCR and and Jeff and his colleagues deserve an awful lot of credit for first identifying this issue in uh, in the late 1990s, a series of studies that were undertaken from 1999 to 2003, and the the paper, the the sort of the overview paper that was published in 2003. The issue came onto 
to the agenda of, of the global refugee regime's decision-making bodies uh, at the Standing Committee meeting in June 2004, where UNHCR uh, proposed a paper for member states for their discussion. This was in parallel to a number of research and advocacy campaigns, uh, work from the United Nations University, its project on protracted refugee situations, Howard Edelman and a group uh, conducted a project on protracted refugee situations uh, in Asia, and the work of the U.S. Committee on Refugees and Immigrants and their anti-warehousing campaign. So a, 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 a range of actors were involved in highlighting the significance of this issue, of working through this idea, uh, the, the, the very early stages of the, of the refugee policy process, in identifying this in, in, in the agenda-setting process, in getting this issue onto the agenda of the global refugee regime. Um, there, there was some important state leadership here in terms of Canada's role with the Interdepartmental Working Group on Protracted Refugee Situations. But what we really see is a culmination around three events in 2008 uh, and 2009. The first was the launching of the High Commissioner's Initiative on Protracted Refugee Situations in June 2008, intended to reinvigorate international action in responding to protracted refugee situations, identified uh, five priority cases uh, to be uh, pursued. Uh, the High Commissioner's Dialogue in December 2008 is generally regarded as a very important time, and especially UNHCR's background paper in November 2008 that included um, a, a recognition of the importance of moving away from long-term care and maintenance uh, in protracted refugee situations, and then culminating in the Executive Committee conclusion on protracted refugee situations in December 2009. And here it's important to highlight the fact that it was during an extraordinary meeting of the Executive Committee in December, as opposed to the normal meeting in October. The final text of the XCOM conclusion uh, fulfills all the criteria of being considered as an example of global refugee policy. Uh, it contains agreement on the definition of the policy problem and includes a very number of very specific steps that a range of actors need to take to respond to this uh, policy problem. But this is where the lessons from the product and the process become very important. If we take the text as given, it would suggest that there was a high degree of consensus. It was a consensus document. If we look at the text alone, we would be given the sense that there was a high degree of consensus of what needed to be done and by whom. But in following the process, especially leading up to efforts to reach a consensus by, December, by September 2009, leading to extra uh, continued negotiations through to December, helps reveal where certain uh, phrases within the text of the conclusion really indicate the extent of uh, the tension between some of the key actors within the global refugee regime. So as I said, uh, there was negotiation over the summer uh, to try and the uh, summer of 2009 to reach a, an agreement on this text. By the meeting of the executive committee in uh, its normal meeting in 2009, there was no consensus. Many felt as though an effort to uh, achieve an XCOM conclusion on protracted refugee situations has failed. Um, some donor states played a very key role in sustaining negotiations through to December, and a consensus text was adopted. But in understanding the process and the text that followed, we see that there are some very important um, uh, developments that have taken place, such as the definition of protracted refugee situations and, and the importance of pathways to local integration and notions of self-reliance. 
But where we see the uh, tensions in the process that foreshadow some of the challenges of implementation is this very strong language on assertions of sovereignty. Uh, host states in the global south insisted on language about the sovereign prerogative of states to grant citizenship. This very forceful language of pathways to local integration, not, uh, that's encouragement of self-reliance not becoming a backdoor uh, to naturalization. And there were calls for case-specific and multi-sectoral approaches. Now, on the one hand, this represents some of the changing dynamics within XCOM itself, the increased tension between uh, donor and resettlement countries in the global north and hosting states in the global south. But what we see much more generally is in understanding the process that led to that document foreshadows the challenges of implementation, even in a case like Tanzania. Now, Tanzania is significant because at the time, it was the lowest hanging fruit. So... Prior to negotiations on an executive committee conclusion, almost a year before, Tanzania had announced its willingness to offer naturalization as a solution for some 220,000, or some of the 220,000 Burundian refugees who'd been on its territory since 1972. Tanz the case of Tanzania was one of these five priority cases included in the High Commissioner's Initiative launched in June 2008. And the supplementary appeal was very quickly met by donors of $34 million. And in an incredibly short period of time, especially given that UNHCR had not been in the settlement since the mid-1980s, from the launch of a program in March 2008 to the registration of refugees in the settlement, the processing of citizenship applications, to June 2010, where Minister of Home Affairs Lawrence Masha at the time announced in the National Assembly that 98% of applications for naturalization of these 164 individuals who'd applied, 98% had been accepted. So there's a very quick move to declare success. This was a successful example of the implementation of a global refugee policy to resolve protracted refugee situations. This was very quickly seen as a success story. But not so fast. Many of the uh, challenges that were foreshadowed by the process of negotiating the text of the XCOM conclusion soon came to uh, soon came to bear in the process of implementing this policy in the Tanzanian context. One of the requirements uh, specified by the government of Tanzania is that of those 164 odd thousand newly naturalized Tanzanians who would receive citizenship, they could not remain in the settlements of Katumba, Uliakumba, and, uh, and Mishamo. Instead, they needed to relocate to one of 16 regions around Tanzania. In response to this requirement, and notwithstanding the unease felt by UNHCR and the donor community and a number of uh, uh, human rights organizations, to ensure that momentum was sustained... Donors did what donors do, is that they negotiated a plan and they pledged money. So uh, the NASCIP, the National Strategy of Community Integration Program, pledged uh, $350 million to support relocation to these 16 regions across Tanzania. Uh, relocation uh, officers were recruited. Uh, uh, workshops were held in the 16 regions. And crucially, and, and this was a, a significant leap forward in the linking of solutions for refugees to development debates, 
$103 million was included in the UN Development Assistance Plan for Tanzania, the 2011-2015 the UNDAP. So within the core development assistance plan between, negotiated between the United Nations and the government of Tanzania, there were line items there for the relocation and absorption capacity. So from that declaration through to this negotiation, everything seemed to be moving the right way. And then, the day after World Refugee Day, the new Minister of Home Affairs announced that the government was now reluctant. The government was going to consider a new path. The Prime Minister Peter Pinda announced uh, the, the, the following day that the government had decided that it might not actually grant citizenship, that it might back away from this commitment. And in August 2011, the relocation programming and the relocation planning was officially suspended. So how did we go from a moment of such significant momentum from 2008, the early implementation of of this global policy in a local context and such an early hope to declare success in the context of Tanzania, how did we then get in in August uh, 2011 get to a point where we talked about um, this process being suspended? And this is where the understanding of global refugee policy as a process becomes so important. And where an understanding of the multiple interests and the actors involved, not only in the formulation and the adoption of a policy, but in the implementation of the policy, where it becomes so important in understanding global refugee policy as a process. Now, to explain non-implementation, I go into this in much more detail in the piece in the special issue, that non-implementation baffled many observers of, uh, of the case of Tanzania. But a close reading of Tanzanian domestic politics revealed that non-implementation could largely be explained as a result of declining public confidence in CCM, the ruling party in Tanzania, uh, President Kikwete's erosion of authority within the ruling party, and tensions within the ruling party uh, from October 2008, but certainly since the elections in October 2010. Remember, it was in June 2010 that Lawrence Masha, as the Minister of Home Affairs, announced the 98% approval rate for naturalization. We then heard that there was a, a, a request from the government, but we don't want to push forward with relocation because an election is around the corner, and we don't want the opposition parties to accuse us of parachuting new voters into marginal riding. So let's wait until after the election. Well, the election results didn't quite go the way Kikwete or the reformists within CCM had hoped. Kikwete only received 62, uh, 62.8% of the vote compared with over 80% in 2005. CCM's share of directly elected seats reduced. Opposition parties made important gains in refugee hosting areas. And what we find is that the issue of naturalization, which had become so closely associated with Kikwete and the reformist branch of the CCM, became a a rallying point for the traditionalists within CCM, that faction of the party opposed to Kikwete. And so what we see in June and July 2011, 
there were 13 statements made in the National Assembly on the question of naturalization. 12 of those 13 were opposing naturalization. And of those 12 opposing naturalization, 11 were made by CCM MPs, by MPs representing the ruling party who had themselves brought forward the idea of naturalization. And here's just one example of one of those statements that you can read uh, for yourselves. So what what this shows us is that factors unrelated to the presence of refugees significantly constrain the government's ability to fully implement its policy on naturalizations of Burundians. And by the time we get to July, August 2011, where it's suspended, there's a sense of of wanting to distance um, distance ourselves from the naturalization process in Tanzania. As as late as uh, sorry, as late as May 2014, High Commissioner refugees, Antonio Guterres, was saying, well, maybe we were too quick to declare victory or to declare success uh, in the naturalization process in Tanzania. But then there was another surprise. To everyone's great surprise, at the executive committee meeting in 2014, the Tanzanian delegation in a side meeting on solutions for refugees in Africa announced that they would, in fact, proceed with the naturalization process, with issuing citizenship, and they would drop the prerequisite of relocation. And the first set of uh, citizenship papers were handed out by President Kikwete, there in the middle of the photo, on the 14th of October 2014, which significantly is the anniversary of the death of Molimu Julius Nere, the first president of Tanzania, for reasons I can get into in the discussion time. So as I say, relocation was no longer a requirement. It was very encouraging news, and it remains very encouraging news, But it still completely baffles us in terms of understanding this ebb and flow in the naturalization process in Tanzania. And it speaks again to the significance of understanding global refugee policy not as a product but as a process. In the context of Tanzania, we, see, we saw this ebb and flow of, of, of a very early movement from 2007 to 2010, suspension from 2011, very limited movement, if any movement, right through until this surprise announcement in October 2014. Our current understanding of how global policy works does not sufficiently explain this ebb and flow. In the context of Tanzania, we see the role for global refugee policy was very important in the early stages. The significant level of donor support for the supplementary appeal in 2008 can largely be be explained by the sense that donors were uh, aware of the issue of protracted refugee situations and were keen to identify a case where solutions could be uh, pursued and where successful implementation of a policy on global refu- on, on, on protracted refugee situations could be seen. But these same tools, these global refugee policy tools, were very limited in their ability to, uh, to respond to domestic constraints. As, uh, as the political context in Tanzania became more limited uh, and as uh, the government was uh, diminished in its ability to, uh, to push through the naturalization process, the normal tools at the disposal of the global refugee regime, uh, provision of material uh, support, uh, donor support, technical expertise, uh, didn't, wasn't able to unblock or overcome this impasse. 
It points very much to the need to consider the full policy cycle, uh, that a mere declaration of a policy is not sufficient to, uh, to, to chalk up uh, a win. Uh, it does speak to the importance of recognizing and seizing policy opportunities, something I can get into in the question time. But crucially, it speaks to the need for ongoing political analysis to understand the domestic context within which global policy is implemented. Global policy is not implemented in a vacuum. It's implemented within a domestic context where there are national and subnational actors that have very clear interests. And this is important that this becomes more fully part of our study of global refugee policy. It's also important to note the role of global policy actors, that we saw two very different UNHCRs in Tanzania. And this is where there's an interesting conversation with some of Alex's observations about um, UNHCR and its role uh, that's, that's mentioned in, uh, in the final chapters of survival migration. Uh, in the early stages of the naturalization process, uh, you saw a very politically aware and very politically engaged UNHCR country team in Tanzania that was able to seize on an opportunity to promote naturalization as an option for refugees. In contrast, uh, post-election uh, 2010, the country team in Tanzania was more technocratic, more bureaucratic, more focused on uh, the, the normal requirements of uh, reporting uh, a UNHCR operation a country like Tanzania, less aware of and less able to respond to changing domestic political contexts. Also important is the response of the donor community to the delays in, in, in relocation planning. And I think there are important lessons uh, to be learned from the wait-and-see approach that the donor community uh, took. Uh, but more generally, and here I, I move into, uh, into my conclusion, that the case of Tanzania uh, holds very important lessons for the broader study of global refugee policy for at least two very important reasons. First, what we see in the literature on global public policy and the, and the work of Soros and others from the late 80s and the early 1990s, there's a sense that in the, uh, at the disposal of global actors, there are these three types of tools where global actors can influence policy implementation in national contexts. One, that they can prioritize particular policy problems, encourage national governments to make certain issues a priority. They can enforce regulations. They can uh, remind states of their obligations, uh, certain international obligations. And they can finance specific programs that they can uh, offer funds to encourage governments to act in particular ways or can offer expertise, technical expertise, to uh, pursue certain policy options. We saw all three of these happening in the context of Tanzania with the funding that was offered uh, in terms of uh, the, 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 the integration program and in, uh, in the UN Development Assistance Plan, in the role of global policy actors in bringing the option of naturalization onto the agenda. But we see that perhaps the case of Tanzania suggests that global refugee policy speaks to broader debates on global public policy, that there may be more at stake than these three mechanisms. And this speaks to some of the work that Alex has done in, in, in his on the survival migration that argues that if the processes that shape implementation can be understood, they can be influenced. So it may be that the work on global public policy takes a very issue-specific approach to where there are points of leverage 
in implementing global policy in national contexts. And I think what the case of Tanzania suggests is that there are other interests beyond the issue at stake. The issue of naturalization was delayed, or the, the pursuit of naturalization was delayed in Tanzania, not because of anything to do with the refugee population itself. So this speaks to the importance of looking beyond the particularities of the issue area, of the particular uh, context within which we find uh, refugees and other populations of concern to the global refugee regime, and to look what are the other interests that condition the context within which policies can be implemented. I think it also speaks to the idea of looking at interests beyond national governments and states. I'd be happy to talk more in the question time about the role of sub-state actors, local government authorities, uh, non-state actors, especially the private sector in Tanzania, and some missed opportunities with a group called um, Agrisol. Uh, bureaucratic interests within the bureaucratic machinery within Tanzania, and political interests within uh, the ruling party in Tanzania itself. But what it does is it speaks to the fact that understanding why and how this document, the XCOM conclusion on protracted refugee situations, is a product, there's a whole myriad of factors that go into explaining why we were able or unable to implement it in the context of Tanzania and why it became implemented once many of the global policy actors seemed to back away from any hope in seeing it implemented. So by means of conclusion, let me just say that from this understanding of global refugee policy both as a product and a process, as a process that goes through these five stages of agenda setting, policy formulation, decision making, uh, implementation, and evaluation, from this understanding of it being a highly contested process where a range of actors have interests at stake, we're very uh, fortunate uh, to have the seminar series with the, uh, the topics that you see there and I alluded to at the beginning of the presentation. Each presentation will speak to different aspects and different stages in the global uh, refugee policy process. We'll also speak to different actors, not only uh, UNHCR actors, but epistemic communities and other actors as well. I'd also uh, welcome uh, anyone who uh, would be uh, interested in attending uh, a, work in paper, a work in progress uh, presentation that I'm going to give uh, on the 5th of May, where I'm going to build from this work on global refugee policy to try and ask questions about which actors have power or influence at different stages in the policy process. More generally, what, we're, what we've done to try and encourage additional research on, on, on global refugee policy is first uh, developing a, a virtual network. There's a, a very rudimentary website that was launched in response to suggestions received in December 2012, uh, where we hope that that will create a space for more virtual collaboration on this area of research. Uh, we're also developing a series of partnerships to examine global refugee policy, specific examples of global refugee policy. Uh, I can talk more about this in the question time, but uh, CARE, uh, the NGO CARE, has signed a, memora a memorandum of understanding uh, with Carleton University and York University in Canada, uh, whereby graduate students can go and conduct field work in field operations of CARE, one of the 17 countries where they're responsible for refugee operations, to look at different examples of the implementation of different examples of, uh, of global refugee policy. And our hope is that we'll be able to bring in more partners in doing this work, more universities in doing this work, uh, with a hope 
that we'll be able to develop a, uh, a, a larger catalog of comparable case studies where we can theorize more systematically about the factors influencing the implementation of global refugee policy. And then uh, the third point that I'd raise is uh, in September, uh, September 2015, we'll be hosting a workshop at Carleton that specifically looks at the role of, of states, international organizations, NGOs, epistemic communities, diaspora groups, and other actors in the making and implementation of global refugee policy. And we'll be discussing the possibility. It will be video linked with the Center for Refugee Studies at York and the International uh, the Institute for the Study of International Migration at, at Georgetown. And we're in discussions with the possibility of having it video linked with the RSC here so that there can be more virtual participation in this. Um, but most importantly, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that this, although this is the result of uh, what I've presented, is the framework from the special issue and an effort to make an argument of the importance of looking at global refugee policy as a discernible area of activity within the global refugee regime. I've also proposed that we can understand global refugee policy both as a product and as a process. And that by understanding the process of global refugee policy, we can understand where and how it becomes contested and the various factors that explain the course of an individual policy. Um, this is uh, a work in progress, as Alex alluded to. This is a very new area of inquiry. Um, I very much welcome your comments and your feedback in the discussion time now, but certainly over the next uh, five weeks uh, as, I, uh, as I'm here at the RSC, I'd welcome the opportunity to engage with you uh, in, on these questions through the seminar series and through more informal uh, opportunities. Thank you. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Studies Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.